How do we grow godly relationships? And we're going to do that from the book of Philemon. So if you'd like to turn there, we're going to read the whole letter that Paul wrote. Uh, people broke it out into about 25 verses. It's just a letter from Paul to Philemon and some other people. We'll get into that here a little bit this morning. Uh, but first, let's talk as we always do. So let's see if we can take a stroll down memory lane. Do you remember how easy it was when you were small? And some of you in this room are still young. Do you remember how easy it was to make a friend when you were just like in kindergarten? You know, four, five, six years old. Or if you have children or grandchildren, you go to the playground. And before you know it, your child or grandchild's playing with somebody else. And they come over to you and they say, hey, I made a friend. Right? I can remember a friend, like when I was in third grade, my friend was the person I got sat beside by my teacher. And so whatever our alphabetical order was for that class, well, this was my new best friend because we were sitting by each other. And it was just that simple. Or maybe you've seen your children or grandchildren, or maybe you can remember being waving at somebody in a restaurant or having a, another kid just smile at you. And you kind of, oh, mom or dad, I just made a friend, right? We, we thought it was just that simple. And it seems like it is that simple for kids, right? They don't know anything else. Uh, there's not the, no ulterior motives there or anything. It just seems to be pretty pure and simple for them. Well, as we've gotten uh, maybe a little bit more mature, as we've grown a little bit, we've found that there's a difference between being friendly, right, and being a friend. And a wave in a restaurant is friendly, but it doesn't make us friends. Or sitting next to bodies, even in a church service, can make us be friendly. Hi, how are you today? And we might shake hands, but it may not mean that we are friends, right? And so we're going to look a little bit deeper at to what it means to really build uh, a relationship. So relationships aren't produced instantly. What we'll see today is they take a lot of work. And so if that's husband and wife, there's a lot of work. If that's parent-child, there's a lot of work. If it's child to parent, right? Neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, classmate to classmate, employee to employer, a teammate to coach, teammate to teammate, or you just name it. Every relationship that we can experience on this planet, it takes work. And what we're going to do is look at this then from a godly perspective. What are some guidelines based on the relationship we see here between Philemon and Onesimus? What are some things that we can learn as it relates to building godly relationships? Uh, so we'll read these 25 verses like we said. And here you've got Paul writing this letter from jail and he's trying to encourage Philemon, right? Now, initially, he writes to him, and he says, Man, I am encouraged by your faith and your love for people. What I've heard about you, Philemon, is that you have received the grace of Christ, and that flows out of you like crazy, and people are just encouraged. So when I hear what you're doing for others, it encourages me. And he uses that then as his platform then to challenge Philemon to continue to show love and to grace. So our main players in the story, you've got God always, You've got Paul as the author. You've got Philemon and Onesimus. Those are the main four. There are others mentioned. We'll mention them as well. But typically those are the first four that you think of when you think of this little letter to Philemon. All right, so you can follow along on the wall or in your bulletin. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in your Bible if you'd like to here this morning as we read these verses. All right, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is encouraged as he's hearing the love and faith being displayed by Philemon. And I pray for you, and I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And so as a Christian, we have the responsibility of calling out truths to one another. Right? We can command things of one another because the Word of God says so. So when somebody says, I'm not going to forgive as a fellow Christian, what do we need to say? Yeah, you're right. Don't forgive. No. We may feel that way, but what we need to call out to that person is the Word of God says you should forgive. So I know it's hard, but you've got to forgive them. Right? And so Paul says, I could appeal to you on the commands that we're under, but I'm going to... Com- try to compel you based on the love that I have already heard about. And so it says, none other than Paul. This is who I'm writing. An old man, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So this is his son in the faith. He becomes a believer. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. And I would have liked to have kept him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And so if you consider me a partner, Philemon, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. And I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So he had been refreshed He said that already earlier, and now he's asking for another refreshing here as it relates to Onesimus. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right, so this is just a little letter uh, that Paul is writing here to thank God on behalf of Philemon and to also encourage Philemon to be someone who lives out further the idea of the grace and love that had been showed to him. So a few things we're going to note as it relates to God, the relationships uh, from this text. And primarily we're looking here at Philemon. All right, we're going to look at how he was challenged, how he responds, and what the ultimate end result uh, of that can be in our lives here today. So as always, you can follow along in your bulletins if you'd like to. That's just there for your personal benefit. All right, one here. God, 
Uh, godly relationships, rather, are grace-based relationships. Godly relationships are grace-based relationships. Now, let's make something clear right up front. Godly relationships being grace-based does not mean that both people have to be under grace. Okay? So this could be about a relationship between a believer and an unbeliever. We're just talking about from our perspective, as much as it depends on us, we're going to treat people with grace. So the basis, the foundation for the relationship that we're trying to build or uphold is grace. Paul was somebody who had received God's grace. So was Philemon. And so he appeals to him on, on those grounds. And so let's go back and read it. He says, Grace and peace to you from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So here you've got two people who've experienced the grace of Christ. You've got Paul and you've got Philemon. And Paul is appealing to that grace here to try to charge or encourage Philemon to live out under that grace. Now, remember as we said last week, everything ends in the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God, right? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be what? You remember? To him be glory forever. Amen. All right? We said that last week. Now, I can't tell you how satisfied that makes me to know uh, every week as we gather here, we're going to call this out to one another. That the most important thing you and I can do in each and every situation is to strive for the glory of God. I need that from you. And I would guess that you need that from me as well. Because there will be moments in my life where I don't want the glory of God first. I want the revenge of Corey. I want people to understand the preference or opinion or presumption of Corey rather than Corey living for God's glory. And so I'm going to need you to be in my ear saying, no, no, no. I understand how you feel, but God's glory must be preeminent. It must be first. It's what we're after. And we see that here in the context of this story. What does Paul say? What does he do because, Ones or because Philemon has loved people and showed faith to God's people? What's Paul's response? He says, I pray, right? If you back up here to verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. You know what he's doing? He's bringing glory to God. To God be glory forever. He's bringing glory to God because of what Philemon has done. So it's God's glory first. We're grace recipients. We're to be grace givers. But the main motivation is the glory of God. And so how is God glorified in our lives? How is it that we can highlight the grace giver? Just think of it this way for a minute. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they said to you, man, that sounded just like your mom? Or maybe you had a certain gesture, you acted in a certain way, and you said, oh, man, you just reminded me so much of your dad right there. Right? In that moment, you know what we're doing? We're bringing glory to our mom and dad. We're bringing honor to our mom and dad. We are bringing a reflection to our mom and dad. So when people see me, now they're thinking of Lee. And when people see, that's my dad, by the way. And when people see me, they're thinking of Kay. That's my mom. Right? When they hear me. Now, not all the time, but there's times where that happens. And so that's how this should work as fellow Christians, right, to, even to unbelievers. When I live out my faith, they should go, oh, man, that looks like God. 
That sounds like something God would say. That's how I understand Jesus. Right? So when they look at our lives, they should be able to look beyond us and see the grace and the love of Christ. Sounds simple enough, right? Probably nothing there you haven't heard before. What makes this hard? What makes this hard is when we try to live this out. Right? So we prayed this morning, God, don't let us just be people who know truth, who have no intention of living it out. He says it's worse for those people. It's worse for the people who know what to do and don't do it than it is for those who don't know what to do. I don't want to be one of the people who know what to do, but I'm not acting on it. And so what makes grace and love hard is when somebody's been mean to me, somebody's been rude to me, somebody's hurt me or hurt somebody that I love, it makes it hard then for me to show you grace. Would you agree? It makes it hard for me to love you if you're not loving me first. How do I have an attitude towards somebody whose attitude towards me is always mean-spirited? How do I have a grace-based attitude towards that person? So is this what Scripture calls us to? Am I supposed to show grace even when people are mean to me? Rude to me? Hurt me? Yeah, supposed to, right? That's the word. You know, you've probably seen the video. I've watched it three or four times here. Just came out two or three days ago. The dad whose daughters were in court. You've seen that? And he's hearing for the first time the report of his daughters. His daughters were USA gymnasts who were abused by this same man who's abused 150 plus girls so far who've come out. And he's got at least 10 counts that have been, been convicted of. And he's in prison for my life and your life and everybody else's life for a long, he's in there for a long time. And so this dad's in this courtroom and he's listening to his daughters read what this doctor did to his daughters. And what he says to the judges as a part of his sentencing, will you give me just five minutes with that man in a locked room? Just me and him. Sound pretty good? The judge says, no, no, sir, you know I cannot, you know I cannot do that. He says, well, can you just give me one minute? I'll take one minute with that man in a locked room, just me and him. And the judge says, no, sir, you know I can't do that. Then he says, well, I'll have my time now. And he takes off from behind his stand and he lunges at this man, grabs a hold of him. And about the time he grabs a hold of him, there's four or five police officers who just put him on the ground. And they put handcuffs on him and they try to settle him down. And so they take him out and he ultimately comes back in. But... So as a dad, I watched that four or five times because I'm like, I would do that same thing. I mean, there's part of me that wants to say amen to that. That's the Satan part of me. That's the sinful part. That's not the God-honoring part of me. For from him and through him and to him is everything. What's next? To God be the glory forever. And so I looked at that, and I just like, God, man, those aren't my girls, but that could be my heart. Because I'd like to lay hands on that man, not in a godly way. 
See, there's a part of us that would like to say amen. But the part we've got to be saying amen to, remember? We said it last week. To God be the glory forever. And how does it end? Amen. Amen. May God be glorified in everything. Every situation. Every thought I have. Every word I say. Every deed I do. May the glory of God be displayed. When a dad rushes another man to tackle him or harm him, the glory of God is not being displayed. We might say, I understand that. But that's not the glory of God. Romans 12, God says, vengeance is mine. I will what? I will repay. And so this dad is brought back in. We totally understand where he's coming from. True? And no one would say, even the judge herself said, she was going to dismiss this because this is the first time you're hearing some of this stuff and it's just emotional reaction. Nobody faults the dad for responding that way. But God's not honored in that. And so he comes back in and he has the opportunity to speak. And for three or four minutes he speaks and he says, I would ask a hundred times over for the court to forgive me. I have the utmost respect for our judicial system, for our police officers. I'm here to help and heal my daughters. I'm not here to hurl, uh, hurt them further or upstage them. And so he pleads for the court to show him what? Right? He wants Grace. That grace is undeserved. You don't deserve it. And so he's asking them to give him something he doesn't deserve. He then goes on to say, I hope that when this doctor dies, right, let me read this quote to you. I hope that he is sent to the deepest, darkest, hottest pits in hell there is. Now again, no one would say, I don't understand where that's coming from. But as Christians, we got to call one another out on that and say, no, no, no. I don't care how bad you've been hurt. And that's not to say I don't care about it. It's to say we never have the option to do anything less than show grace. Never. Because it's his glory and his glory first. I can identify with that, man, though. There's so many times where I want grace, but I don't want to show it. Isn't that what he's asking for? Court, show me grace. God, send him to the deepest, darkest, hottest pit of hell. Because that's what he deserves. We look at people and we say, they don't deserve it. And you know what we give because of that? Grace. What is grace? What's the Sunday school definition you've been taught for grace your entire life? It's unmerited. It's undeserved favor. The reason we give grace is because it is undeserved. And if somebody deserves it, we're not giving grace. It's something totally different. So I have to look at people and go, God, this is hard for me. My heart is not in this. And I'm upset or I'm mad or I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is right. Go ahead and lay it out there before your father. But then we've got to say, as you have forgiven me, I'll forgive them. May God be glorified forever. Amen. Job said a little differently, didn't he? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. His wife said, so curse God and die. Job said, no, no, no. And may the name of the Lord be praised. Simple principle, right? Hey, let's have grace-based relationships. Great, that's what Christians do. Okay, let's live it out. Ooh. 
Right? We've got to be calling one another out. Don't be the fuel to somebody's fire to hate somebody else. Don't be the support system for somebody to hold a grudge. Listen, sympathize, but then always point me back to truth. I understand how you're feeling, but we are to show grace as we've been given grace. We're to love as we've been loved. All right? It's not easy. Two, godly relationships aren't only grace-based, but they're going to further the work of the gospel in the community. This is a promise from Jesus. So as this letter starts, Paul tells us who it's intended for. Who's it written to? What's the name of the book? All right, so it's, it's a letter to Philemon. So we know initially like who it's intended to, but if you've read it before, just as we did, you've seen that there are more people involved. So let's read it again here. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So we got Paul. Timothy, our brother. So from Paul and Timothy here. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Okay, that's verse 1. Verse 2, he's going to include some other people. Also to Aphia. Some have said this could have been Philemon's wife. Calls him our sister in the faith. And Archippus, some say, is the pastor of that local church. Doesn't say specifically, but call a fellow soldier is why that reference is sometimes made. Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to whom? And to the church that meets in your home. So this letter is pretty broad, right? Who is the situation between? Who's having problems? I mean, this sounds like a private matter. Right? Philemon and Onesimus. And you got kind of a mediator, peacemaker, and Paul. But Paul's writing a letter. He's, he's kind of a secret service almost. He's just going to slip in, drop a letter through a carrier, and try to encourage Philemon to do the right thing, and try to restore a relationship that was broken here. And so, yeah, it's to Philemon, but it's also to Aphia, Archippus, and the church that meets there. So, why include all these people in the letter? Why let them in on what seems to be a private matter? The reason they're being let in is because there is a good purpose for the furthering of the gospel in Aphia and Archippus and in the church that meets in their home. There's a chance for their faith to be built and strengthened. There's a, a chance for them to model beyond their church what the grace of, of Christ actually looks like. There's a theologian by the name of, uh, from the 19th century, J.B. Lightfoot. He's uh, also a historian, and he has written about this time period when Philemon was uh, believed to have been written. And here's what he says that was going on. We're talking society. We're talking culture here. This is what's going on around the time that Onesimus somehow, we're not sure if he ran away or what happens, but at some point he becomes useless to Philemon. They're separated, right? Uh, Onesimus is known as a slave. Philemon would have been his, his slave master or owner. They're separated uh, because he's been useless to his, to his master. So listen to this story. J.B. Lightfoot writes and says, two, two or three years before Paul wrote to Philemon, there was a slave who had killed his master, and that master 
was a Roman senator. All right? Master was a Roman senator. The law demanded that whenever a slave killed the, the master of the household, then every slave under that household would be executed. And so this owner had 400 slaves. That's 400, 400 slaves. Now, knowing the law, the people tried to intervene on behalf of these slaves. And there was a special meeting held among that Roman Senate. And what they decided is that the law needed to be carried out. And so 400 slaves were executed. So this is the context in which Paul is writing to Philemon, right? This is just, this is a fresh story within their community, within their culture. They would have known that this happened. And so as it relates to Onesimus, what could Onesimus be facing? Death, right? He could be facing death here. So justice, and by the way, that would be upholding the law. Right? Justice isn't bad. We want justice in our life sometimes. Justice between Onesimus and Philemon could mean death for Onesimus. But Paul appeals to a greater law. And he's going to appeal to the law of grace. Now, a side note. Slavery in the Bible is not the same as what we think of slavery from the 16th through the 19th century periods. Right? 16th through 19th century slavery, we think of race. What color do we think of? Black. Okay? Race-based slavery is outlawed in the Bible. The Bible also outlaws stealing somebody and then selling that person. The person who steals and sells is to be punished by death. 16th to 19th century slavery was slave hunters going around rounding up black people, selling them to slave traders who were then loading them on ships and bringing them to different parts of the world to then sell them as slaves. Okay? The Bible condones that. So when people talk about, the Bible condemns that rather. So when people talk about, well, the Bible supports slavery not in our context that we understand slavery. Slavery back in this day was often something that was um, a choice of the person. If I owed you money and I couldn't pay it back, often then I would indebt myself to you by becoming your slave. And you wouldn't whip me across my back and you wouldn't beat me with rods and you wouldn't make fun of me. You would work me because I owed you a debt. Sometimes doctors and lawyers, physicians, they willingly became slaves of people who had great influence or lots of money. Why would someone do that? They would do that because then they knew they would be taken care of. So yeah, I'll, be, I'll serve you alone. I'll be your slave, but you'll promise to take care of me and my family. That's right. Okay, so just when we're talking about slavery here, I think it's important to highlight that. When we think about social issues in our day, that's one of these hot-button issues. It gets brought up pretty frequently. It's one of those things that's thrown against the Bible or it's thrown against God or it's thrown against Christians as though we endorse slavery. We don't endorse slavery at all. The Bible didn't endorse slavery. It gave guidelines for people who willingly sold themselves to cover their debt. 
but it totally condemns race-based or hunting, stealing, trading, selling people. Uh, none of those things are allowed. And so here you've got Onesimus returning to Philemon. M maybe. We don't know. Right? We don't really know if he ever came back or not. We don't know the end of this story. But if he's going to return, then Paul's going to appeal to Philemon and say, hey, don't just stop short at justice. You could. The law would uphold that. But let's go further. Let's show him grace. All right, let's show him grace. What would be the benefit of showing someone grace who deserved justice? Well, what benefit would it be to Aphia? If Onesimus returns and Philemon and Onesimus are able to reconcile, what is she going to see? Man, there's a law at work in his heart that's bigger than justice. There's a grace at work in his life that is really transforming him. Look at how he is treating Onesimus. And not only him, but Archippus would see that, and so would the church that meets there, and so would the people who live around them. Onesimus was gone, and now he's back, and he is friends, restored, reconciled with Philemon. See, godly relationships have the ability to influence communities. Right? We want to throw out stuff sometimes that's not beneficial to drawing people from our community to Christ. Demonstrate grace. Show grace. Pray grace. Now, is there anything wrong with justice? Is Paul saying justice is bad? Not at all. Right? He's not condemning justice. He's just simply saying there's a deeper, more godlike law at work in this age, church age, and it's the law of grace. And so godly relationships don't just settle for justice when they can work to further the gospel through grace. So if Jesus was telling the truth when he said this world will know that God loves them, how we love one another doesn't it then just beg us to be lavish with love and grace just as he's been lavish towards us? If that's how they'll know. Grace-based relationships have the ability to spread grace not only through a church but through a culture. Providing a platform for the gospel to flourish rather than to work to stifle it. So it's going to further the work. It has the potential to do so. And then third and last this morning, God relationships are worth the work that they require. So as we read through this little letter, what you see that there's some things that are going to have to happen. Anytime somebody has wronged us, there's some things that have to happen. What do you think would have to take place between the dad of the three daughters and the doctor for there to be reconciliation? You think they both just walked out after that and shook hands and said, hey, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have treated your daughters that way. Yeah, it's okay. You think that's what happened? No way. There's a lot of work that has to take place there. And sometimes what we do, we just rule God out and say he can't do it. Grace says he can. But it's going to be hard. What Paul's saying is this hard work is worth it. And so, yeah, that's going to be work to reconcile an owner with a slave. It's going to be hard work to reconcile as brothers in the faith. 
but it would be worth it. And you can read the story of, well, you can read this letter in 90 seconds comfortably. If you're a speed reader, you can read it faster. If you read and dissect every word, it'll take you a little longer. 90 seconds, you can read this letter of Philemon. But it takes a long time, and it would take a long time for Philemon and Onesimus to have trust restored, to be able to reconcile, to be able to work through the things that would have separated them. Were there accounts to settle? It sounds like there was. Paul says, hey, if, if he's indebted to you, charge it to me. Let's go ahead and deal with that one. Let's get that obstacle out of the way so that we can work towards reconciliation, restoring what was once useless to you. Would it take time to build trust? Absolutely. I mean, a five-year-old on a swing might look at somebody right beside him or her and say, oh, yeah, I trust them. They're my friend. We don't work that way, do we, as adults? Do you automatically just trust somebody you just meet? No way. Somebody randomly walks up to you and says, hey, why don't you come over to my house and hang out for a while? Would you do that? No. Some child walks up to your child and says, hey, why don't you come over and play? And they look up at you and go, can I go to their house? You're like, I don't even know who they are. Because they trust like that. Right? So wisdom says it would take a little time to build some trust to restore what was broken there. Let's see here again. What does Paul say about all this? Is it worth it? He says in verse 11, Formerly Onesimus, he was useless to you, Philemon, but now he has become useful. And that's to you and to me as well. All right, so he's moved from a position of useless to now being useful. In verse 16 he says, uh, you, he's no longer someone that you'll treat as a slave, but he's better than that, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but he is even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So from Paul's perspective, doesn't it sound like if you'll demonstrate grace here, not only does it have an opportunity for the gospel to flourish, but it's going to be worth it for you to do this, Philemon. Right? He's dear to you. He's useful to you. He can be. So he's encouraging Philemon to live out the grace that he himself had received. So regardless of how hard it is, regardless of how long it might take, it's worth it. And it's the right move for the Christian to make. Have you ever presumed something over someone that you actually don't know? Have you ever already determined that this is who someone is and they cannot change, so help them God? And so we back away and we give our reasons to justify why we'll never reconnect. Paul says here it's worth it because it demonstrates the grace of God. What's top shelf issue? What's most important? The glory of God. You know when God's glorified? Here it's through grace-based relationships. Right? Does God pat us on the back and say, I understand why you can't forgive, why you can't love, why you can't restore or reconcile. I understand why you went ahead and presumed to determine that this is who a person is and they'll never change in your mind because you know. 
We've got to be willing to do the hard work that models the hard work of the cross to demonstrate lavish grace and love so God's glorified, so the gospel will flourish. And what Paul says to us as well, it will be worth it. It's beneficial. Yeah, it's hard. But it's worth it. Godly relationships always are. So here, briefly, we've tried to see that growing godly relationships, it's not the same as saying, hey, do you want to swing? Or, hey, would you like to color? Or, hey, do you want to share my lunch? We see that there's a lot more to it than those little simple things. But our default setting is to be grace. That's what I should back up to every time. And I'm telling you, I don't. Right? That's why I said at the start of this message, I love every week you're going to be calling back to me, Corey. Everything is from him and through him and for him, and it's for his glory. Make sure you remember that when you walk out of here. Because I know I'll be faced with opportunities to live in ways that are less than godly. So grace is my default. The impact of living out this grace can be far-reaching. And though it's hard work, it's worth it. What did Jesus say about the cross? Did he say, oh man, this is, this is not going to be worth what comes as the result of it. We're going to die and shed blood for all people and people are going to scorn us, mock us, reject us. They're going to come up with teachings and worldviews that don't include us. They're going to belittle those who love us. Is this worth it? Right in Hebrews, the Bible says, yeah. Jesus went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It tells us from God's perspective, it's hard. But it's worth it. Now, from my perspective, the cross and trying to relate with people seem like they're on totally different playing fields. I'd much rather struggle through trying to build godly relationships rather than go to the cross. But it's modeled for us there what it looks like. And so what I simply just want to ask you today is a couple things. One is, where are you in the process? What steps forward have you made? When you think about that, I want you to just, as we pray, take time to thank God for helping you make steps forward. And then what's the next step I need to take, God? And pray and ask God to show you that. And as God does, ask your church family to partner with you. Help me in this. Will you pray with me? I know this is deep down in me, and it's rooted, and it wants to own me, but it just can't because it doesn't bring glory to God. And I know I've got to deal with it, and I don't want to. Or I know I've got to face it, but I don't want to. Or maybe it's something yet to happen. The main thing is we want to live in such a way that our lives highlight the grace of God. Just like when people say, oh man, I see Lee and Kay in you. More than anything, when I walk away, I want people to say, man, I see Christ in you.